So tonight we uh, launch in to implication number seven from this amazing Nebuchadnezzar, the first king of Babylon. Here's the blank. <clears throat> the only way to be truly in touch with reality and truly sane, <laughs> you ready? The only way to be truly in touch with reality and truly sane is to give God complete control of your life. We're going to unpack that tonight in a whole bunch of application, basically. So we've seen Nebuchadnezzar's vision of, of history, right? Um, but now, let's move forward more than six decades. Nebuchadnezzar has died, and his son Belshazzar is now the king of Babylon. And, and now something happens that you may not be aware of. Daniel now has his own dream, his own vision, and amazingly enough, it perfectly matches Nebuchadnezzar's prophecy of the future. So turn with me to Daniel, Daniel chapter 7. Get to the middle of your Bible in Psalms, turn to the right, and after uh, three uh, chapters, you'll get Isaiah, the first of the major prophets, then it's Isaiah, Jeremiah, uh, Lamentations, Ezekiel, and Daniel. Daniel's the last of the major prophets. If you get to Hosea and the minor prophets, turn back to the left. You're in Daniel chapter 7, and let's hear Daniel's vision that turns out to be a prophecy of the four great coming empires at that time. Ready? Verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw uh, dreams and visions in his mind as he lay on his bed. Then he awoke from the dream and wrote down and related the following summary of it. So here's the summary of Daniel's dream. Daniel said, I was looking in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds from heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four beasts were coming up from the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion, first beast, right? And it had wings of an eagle. I kept looking into its wings until they were plucked, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a human. And a human mind was also given to it. Verse 5, And behold, another beast, beast a second one, resembling a bear. And it was raised up on one side, and three ribs were in its mouth between its teeth. And they said to it, Arise, devour much meat. By the way, we are going to see how that Medo-Persian empire and the three ribs and all of those kind of things actually have great historical meaning in detail as we unpack when we get to Medo-Persia. We're in Babylon right now. Verse 6, And after this I was looking at another, uh, behold, another one. So here's the third beast, uh, like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. We will see again in the initiation of Alexander the Great and in the Greek Empire, incredible details that flow right out of this that history have shown to be that this was a true prophecy. Verse 7, After this I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, and amazingly enough, he doesn't even know what to call this, he simply says, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong, and it had large iron teeth. It devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet, and it was different. We'll see how prophetic this is. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. Notice the ten horns and the ten toes. We're going to see how perfectly all of this parallels Nebuchadnezzar's uh, Daniel chapter 2, uh, a statue. And verse 8, While I was contemplating the horns, behold, another horn, a little one, came up from among them. 
This is the Antichrist. And three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it. And behold, this horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth uttering great boasts. So let's uh, put this on our, um, on our time, uh, not our timeline, but, but uh, you have a handout that uh, looks like this from tonight. So what we have is the head of gold, which was Babylon. That matches Daniel's lion. And amazingly enough, you can see the lion represented it when you go to the British Museum and you see the Ishtar gates uh, with the lion on it. And there it is, uh, the, the Babylonian Ishtar gates uh, with a lion, two lions on it, actually. Um, Medo-Persia, so you've had the lion, then you had the bear, right, which is Medo-Persia. And again, we're going to come back in the future and unpack these and show how incredibly detailed these prophecies were. Um, and then the next one was a leopard, and we will see why a leopard is a perfect uh, is a perfect description of what happened with Greece, especially under Alexander, the first king, if you will. Uh, and then finally, a beast which he couldn't even name, a beast with iron teeth, iron teeth. Um, and it devours everything that's come before it, basically. Okay? And that, of course, is Rome. And again, we're going to see the remarkable unpacking uh, of these things um, as we uh, go forward in the in, uh, coming weeks. Um, uh, so, uh, notice Daniel's vision began with a prophecy about Babylon, just like Nebuchadnezzar did, right? Look at the perfect matching. Um, but unlike Nebuchadnezzar's dream, where, remember how Nebuchadnezzar interprets it, and we'll, 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 uh, we'll hear this again, actually, from the text tonight. But he, he saw himself, and he saw Babylon, and he sees this precious head of gold. But Daniel sees Babylon very differently, right? Look at what Daniel saw. Look with me again at verse 3 in chapter 7. Uh, and four beasts, great beasts, were coming up from the sea, different from one another. The first beast was like a lion that had wings of an eagle, Okay, so notice this. This is important. Um, Daniel saw a combination of two animals in this beast. Here's your blank. A lion, which is, of course, the king of the beasts. There's your blank. So what is the king of the beasts? It's dangerous. It's terrible. Destructive. Devouring everything in its pathway. And the second animal, here it is, an eagle. Here's your blank. An eagle, which is the king of the birds. Right? And in Scripture, this is... Very classic, very important. When we come back to this, we'll unpack it from other parts of the of the biblical text. But birds are typically symbolic of the demonic. Okay, so now think about what we've learned in the last several weeks. Daniel's vision and Nebuchadnezzar's dream are about identical topics, right? Look at the perfect match. Both of their visions were prophetic in foretelling the future of the great civilizations. But now... Think about how differently Nebuchadnezzar interpreted what he saw compared to Daniel. In fact, let's look back at chapter 2, verse 31. When Daniel has unpacked for, uh, uh, excuse me, when he's telling this uh, story of his, of his dream, Daniel unpacking it, um, his dream, he says, You, O king, verse 31 in chapter 2, You, O king, were looking, and behold, there was a single great statue, that statue which was large, and listen to this verbiage, was large and of extraordinary splendor, was standing in front of you, and its 
appearance was awesome. So you got it? Nebuchadnezzar looks at himself and his big empire, and he says, great, extraordinary, awesome. But Daniel looked at Babylon and said, think about what Daniel saw. Daniel sees dangerous, terrible, destructive, demonic. And Daniel also noticed two specific details about the winged lion of Babylon. Go back to chapter 7, back to chapter 7, and look with me now at verse 4. Right? Here's Daniel describing the first beast. The first was like a lion, and it had wings of an eagle. And I kept looking until its wings were plucked, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a human. All right? So write this in. What, what happened to the winged lion? Number one, the wings were plucked. And here's your second blank. Number two, it was given a human mind. Let me make sure I don't miss that in the text. It was lifted up from the ground, made it stand up on two feet like a human, and a human mind was also given to it, right? Now, on first blush, these details may seem trivial, right? Uh, I mean, who cares? If you're doing a yearly read-through, why would you even hesitate to stop and look here? But this is a good example of why you compare Scripture with Scripture. One of the most important attributes, no matter how you study or read the Bible, one of the most important things you will ever do is stop to take the time of when you see something in one place in the Scripture, say, oh, I think that links to that. And using, if you need a chain reference, where you can actually look at the other places that it helps lead you to. That is exactly what we need to do. And when, when you do this, how do you do that? Well, when you're considering a phrase, you look at the sentence. When you're considering a sentence, you look at the paragraph. When you're looking at a paragraph, you look at the book. All of these contextualizing each other. And then when you're looking at a book you then are considering the book in, from the perspective of the whole counsel of God, right? The whole word of God. Now, this is how you prevent yourself from misinterpreting Scripture. This is how you prevent yourself from baptizing dead people, for instance, right? Uh, this is how you uh, end up not being... This is how you keep yourself from joining snake cults, right? All of this stuff, the... All of the fringes, but those are obvious. Those are ditches way on the side. But even the more subtle heresies are so easy to fall into unless you're always comparing Scripture to Scripture within context. Because remember, every heresy begins with a seed of truth. And in fact, the closer a heresy is to the truth, the harder it is to identify heresy. So ready? Here's the key concept. Write it in. The truth is found in the whole counsel of God not in proof-texted ideas flowing from a single portion of Scripture. Okay, so with this in mind now, let's go back and evaluate this passage, Daniel chapter 7. In light of the rest of the book of Daniel, right? What does it mean that the lion had its wings plucked and a human mind was given to it? This is a clear reference, of course, to Daniel chapter 4. You can turn back there, actually, to Daniel chapter 3, because we'll look at the, at the, uh, the preparation for Daniel chapter 4 uh, in 3. Um, this chapter begins right after Nebuchadnezzar has finished seeing Shadrach, 
Meshach and Abednego saved from the fiery furnace. So here's a time, right, where Nebuchadnezzar is acutely aware of God's incredible sovereignty, right? This incredible, amazing event that goes on. And look at verse 26 with me in chapter 3 uh, of Daniel. Verse 26. It's in the last paragraph, I think. Yep, there it is. Uh, uh, actually, it's a little earlier than that. Look at this. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the blazing furnace. You know what? Let's do skip down uh, to 27. And the satraps, right? So here we are at the fiery furnace. The satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's high officials gathered around and saw in regard to these men that they had no fire on them, no effect on the bodies of these men, nor was the hair of their head singed, nor were their trousers damaged, nor had the smell of fire even come upon them. What an incredible deliverance, right? Verse 28, last paragraph. Nebuchadnezzar responded and said, now listen to his response. Boy, does he know God now, right? Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who put their trust in him. And look, at he congratulates them for this, violating the king's command. And they yielded up their bodies so that as not to serve or worship any god except their own God. Remember, this is Nebuchadnezzar, the pagan king, saying this accolades for them. Therefore, I make a decree that any people, nation, or tongue that speaks anything offensive against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses reduced to a rubbish heap inasmuch as there is, listen to him, there is no other God who is able to deliver in this way. Unbelievable. That's, that's the incredible response of him understanding God's great sovereignty at the end of uh, chapter 3 of the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego story. Okay, so think about it. He, he's clueless about God until that event. But now his awareness of who he is has, has, a, has come on strong. And, and look what happens now in chapter 4. He sends out this declaration. Look at this. Nebuchadnezzar the king to all the people's nations and people of every language that live in all the earth, may your peace abound. It has seemed good to me to declare the signs and wonders which the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs and how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion is from generation to generation. Wow, think about it. Nebuchadnezzar sounds like Isaiah, right? Or Ezekiel or Jeremiah. He, he could be writing lyrics for praise songs for Hillsong. In, these incredible statements about God's wonder and praise and sovereignty. What an incredible declaration of God's nature coming from Nebuchadnezzar's mouth. So he sounds literally like one of the great prophets. He sounds like he gets it. But now, interestingly enough, we're going to look at chapter 4. Um, and he has a dream about a huge tree. And this tree has great splendor. And all is going really well for this tree, which is obviously a prophetic picture of he, Nebuchadnezzar himself. And then, totally unexpectedly, the dream turns into a nightmare. A, a great angel comes and says, chop down that tree. So, then something happens in the middle of this vision that directly ties back to Daniel's dream that we just read a few minutes ago. Look with me at verse 16 in chapter 4. Verse 16 in chapter 4. Let his mind be changed 
from that of a man, his meaning the tree, which represents clearly uh, a human leader, Nebuchadnezzar, let his mind be changed from that of a man and let his beasts, let a beast's mind be given to him. So look at this. Look at Daniel's interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Daniel, where does Nebuchadnezzar go? Obviously, he goes straight to Daniel because Daniel is the interpreter of, of dreams. And, and look what happens. Chapter 4, verse 20. Then the tree that you saw, he's telling Nebuchadnezzar what he saw and what it means. The tree that you saw, which became large and grew strong, whose height reached to the sky and was visible to all the earth, and whose foliage was beautiful and its fruit was abundant, and in which the, uh, there was food for all, under which the beasts of the field dwelt and in whose branches the birds of the sky lodged. So this beautiful picture of this massive Babylonian empire and the splendor and the majesty and the great uh, things related to Nebuchadnezzar, right? Verse 22, it is you, O king, for you have become great and grown strong and your majesty has become great and reached to the sky and your dominion to the end of the earth. Verse 23, and in, that, that, and in that the king saw an angelic watcher, a holy one, descending from heaven and saying, chop down the tree and destroy it, yet leave the stump with its roots in the ground, but with a band of iron and bronze around it in the new grass of the field, and let, ready, let him be drenched with the dew of heaven, and let him share with the beasts of the field until seven periods of time, that would be seven years, Seven periods of time pass over him. Verse 24, this is the interpretation, O king, and this is the decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord the king. Verse 25, this is great. That you may be driven away from mankind and your dwelling place be the be with the beasts of the field and you will be given grass to eat like cattle and be drenched with the dew of heaven. And seven periods of time, seven years, will pass over you until, you ready for this? Until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows on it on whomever he wishes. And in that it was commanded to leave the stump with the roots of the tree. Your kingdom will be assured to, after you and you, after you recognize that it is heaven that rules. Therefore, O King, may my advice be pleasing to you. Break away from your sins by doing righteousness and from your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor, in case there may be a prolonging of your prosperity. Always the prophet saying, if you repent now, if you get it now, if you let him be sovereign now, maybe these things will not come about. So what is amazing is, isn't God good? Think about what God is doing. God is to this sinful, pompous, self-absorbed, powerful ruler of the world, God is being given an incredible opportunity, insight, a warning about his life. And Daniel tells him to stop following his own ways and to turn to God. And it looks like for a brief time he has and that he's acknowledged God's sovereignty. But now we're going to see that Nebuchadnezzar's insight, unfortunately, was short. His memory quickly faded. And now look what happens in verse 29, 12 months later, so 12 months after the dream, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. So here is Nebuchadnezzar and listen to his self-aggrandizement. The king reflected and said, 
Is this not Babylon the great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? Could he have any more eyes or mys in this? Look at this. While the word was in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared sovereignty has been removed from you and you will be driven away from mankind and your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field. You will be given grass to eat like cattle and seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize the Most High as ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whom he wishes. Look at verse 33. Immediately, the word concerning Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled and he was driven away from mankind and began eating grass like cattle. Oh my, don't you hope there's video in heaven? And his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. What a picture. This is amazing. So here's what we learn about this amazing passage. You ready? Number one, here's your blanks. Nebuchadnezzar was psychologically healthy, you ready, and emotionally intact when he was exalting God. Number two, the human mind is superior to the animal mind only when we're exalting God and humbling ourselves. In fact, think about it. When people exalt our ways and ignores God's way, ignore God's way, the human mind is worse than the mind of an animal. Think about it. The animal kingdom doesn't have any Stalins or Pol Pots or Mao Zedongs or Hitlers. They don't, the animal kingdom don't have that kind of mania, which ends up being so utterly destructive of so much and so many. Look at verse 30 with me again. The king reflected and said, Is this not Babylon the great which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? And now verse 33 again, Immediately the word concerning Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled and he was driven away from mankind, began eating grass like cattle, and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. Look at this. Here's your blanks. Number three. The more humans exalt our ways over God's ways, the crazier and more detached from reality we become. You see, this association between self-acclaimed greatness and psychosis is, uh, is, is unique, really, to humanity, right? In fact, when I went to medical school, I saw this... Uh, vividly uh, uh, illustrated in one of the patients in my, my uh, third year psych rotation, the first psychiatry rotation that I'd done only, uh, actually on the clinical service. Um, and there was a, a woman there who um, came in uh, psychotic and she had the fixed delusion that she was Queen Elizabeth of England. And so she, uh, when you'd come in to, to do the interview with her, she would literally, you know, she would expect you to bow down to her. She literally did the interview as Queen Elizabeth. And what was amazing, so we started her on antipsychotics. Um, and over time, over the next several weeks, she improved. And what was remarkable was watching her improvement. 
uh, she got a little better, and so she wasn't Queen Elizabeth anymore. She was just her best friend. And then after that, she wasn't her best friend anymore. She just was, you know, a, an acquaintance. And after that, you know, finally she came to realize that she didn't know Queen Elizabeth at all. But you see this, this human psychosis becoming completely detached from reality is a real thing in, uh, in the human race. So here's the key concept, write it in. The more humans humble ourselves and exalt the Lord, the more sane we become. And there's a corollary to that key concept. You ready? Here are your blanks. The more humans exalt our ways and ignore God's ways, the more foolish, here's your blanks, the more foolish, imbalanced, and self-destructive we become. And that leads to our application this evening. Ready? Here's your blanks. The entire foundation of the modern understanding of mental health is flawed. So I want us to know something, notice something about the key concept and the corollary that we just established, right? They're exactly the opposite of the whole foundation of modern psychology. Think about it. Modern psychology regards a well-developed ego and high self-esteem as the basis for mental health. The idea of self-empowerment is the answer to humanity's problems. It's inherently uh, and unfortunately, this is, of course, inherently flawed and distinctly non-biblical. So let's look at a passage that exposes the, the false foundations of the modern understanding. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians, over to the New Testament, about 90% of the way through your Bible. Uh, over to 2 Corinthians, and we're going to look at the 12th chapter. I think there's 13 chapters in uh, 2 Corinthians. So um, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, and look at the first verse. Paul here talking, and he starts this chapter in a very interesting way. Look at this. Boasting is necessary, though it is not profitable. But I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. Okay? So he then goes on to tell of these amazing visions. If you've ever read this section of scripture, it's remarkable. And he literally says, I got to see things when I was caught up into heaven that, that you're not able to even talk about. This amazing revelation. So, so think about how amazing Paul was and how amazing Paul could have thought that he was given this right to be caught up into paradise and see all of this. And that is what shows uh, the amazing insight Paul had in verse 7. Look at this. You may be familiar with these, but it's so instructive now. Here it is, verse 7. And because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, right, those amazing heavenly revelations that he had had that he can't even speak about, right? He, only he and Jesus and the angels know. Um, for this reason... To keep me from exalting myself. Isn't this remarkable? Look at the opposite of Nebuchadnezzar. To keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I entreated the Lord three times that it might depart from me. Some people think this was his blindness, right? But whatever it was, it was a big deal, a big physical problem, right? Verse 9, and he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, here's his testimony, I will rather boast about my weaknesses that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am, listen to the, again, the opposite of Nebuchadnezzar. 
Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So contrast this to the modern self-esteem mantra, right? The wisdom of this age is really a bad joke. It says that the answer is in us and in the power of the self. It's in the wisdom of the self. The answer is the assertion of the self. So the very foundation of modern psychological therapy makes people crazier, right? Again, it's Nebuchadnezzar's statue being on its head. We are going to emerge ourselves with our wisdom as our answer. And as that happens, we just become more detached from reality. Now, I want to take a moment to prevent any misunderstanding, though, right? I'm not talking about emotional disorders like those that are related to the neurotransmitter deficiencies. Uh, you've probably heard of some of these serotonin, uh, norepinephrine, dopamine, these neurotransmitters that are incredibly important for, especially for depression and wakefulness and thought and concentration, all of these kind of things. These are, these are real, right? Um, these, these abnormalities are due to identifiable chemical abnormalities that often can be corrected with good medical treatment. So I'm not talking about that at all. And unfortunately in the church, we've often spiritualized all emotional problems, right? Hey, if you're whatever, if you're d depressed, it must be because you're not close to the Lord, those kind of things. That, that can be very dangerous because that is not necessarily true. And so this is prevented many believers from, from uh, going and getting actually potentially really effective medical treatment that ironically only would be discovered because God has given us the ability in science to do these discoveries, right? So this is as foolish as telling a, a Christian diabetic that they don't need to take their insulin, right? So if you have a deficiency of a hormone in the, in the, uh, in the neurotransmitter uh, group of chemicals, um, obviously replacing that and resetting that chemical uh, imbalance is a very healthy and appropriate thing to do, right? Um, so the Christian groups that do this, by the way, are falling into an ancient philosophy called Gnosticism, which believes that the, 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 the flesh, the body, right, the physical, and the spiritual, the mental, are completely separate. But that is not true. In the biblical worldview, we are body, mind, soul, and spirit all integrated together, right? So here's the biblical concept. Write it in. Here's your blank. Our bodies can profoundly affect our mind and our spirit, right? So taking care of our body is important, and it has spiritual implications. And taking care of our spiritual life has incredible implications in our mental, psychological, and even physical health. So tonight, I'm not talking about bona fide neurohormonal problems uh, that present with psych psychological syndromes, right? I'm referring to an emotional set of disorders that are, aren't neurological, they're not physiological, and ironically, these issues are often made worse by a primary focus on the self, right? Often one of the ways to help people out of these uh, kinds of emotional uh, uh, tr uh, trouble is to help them put their mind somewhere else other than on the self. See, our emotions and our psyche can't stay healthy when we're ignoring God and focusing only on ourself. And this is true because emotional health can never be separated from spiritual health. 
So if you're living outside of God's ways for your spiritual life, you will uh, inevitably have things that happen in the emotional, the physical, and the psychological. Those consequences will occur. Things like anxiety, anger, problems with sleeping, weight gain, weight loss, overwork, worrying, mood swings, all of these can come from or can be made worse by allowing anything in our life to replace Christ at the center. And this makes perfect sense because you can't separate out the physical, the emotional, the psychological, the mental, the spiritual. You can't separate them out from the spiritual life, right? Um, so let me give a, a good biblical example. It comes from King David's life. And uh, you may know, I don't know if you've read these before, but turn back to the middle of the Bible in the Psalms, Psalm 22, and you'll probably recognize this as an amazing messianic prophecy, right? This is, uh, this is actually a prophecy about Jesus in the Psalms coming uh, from King David. But notice with me, uh, here, David is also talking about himself. And uh, his, profound, his depression here is profound. Look with me uh, at the first two verses of Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Wow. Now we know where we hear that again on the cross. So this is prophetic language for the uh, identifying the Messiah when he is crucified. But here, David is just saying it about himself. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry out day by day, but you do not answer. And by night, and yet I have no rest. But here's amazing. As profoundly depressed as David is, listen to David's understanding of what to do with his depression. Look at verse 22. I will tell you, <laughs> I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob's, Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you descendants of Israel, for he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of we who are afflicted, neither has he hidden his face from us. But when we cry to him, isn't this great? When we cry to him for help, he heard us. Isn't that amazing? So while medical science has discovered some therapies that can improve several psychological disorders, King David showed that the most powerful mental health therapy is when a person turns their focus from themselves, even if they're tremendously burdened, onto God. That's why worship, listen church, that's why worship is so central to the biblical concept of health and wholeness. You see, it's in true worship where we gain deeper understanding of who God is and who we are in Him. It's where our identity no longer becomes in how we look or what we have or, or, or our education or our training or, or, or anything else or our societal standing. It's where our identity becomes centered solely in this awesome God who amazingly loves and adores us. It is an incredibly powerful, centering, healthy, balancing perspective on life. So let me ask you some questions. How often do you worship God in your daily life? How often do you just say, Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for who you are. 
Thank you for how much you love me. Thank you for this. And in the midst of hardship, just keep turning back to the focus. Lord, you are my hope. I don't, the circumstances do not control my future. How often are you consumed by who God is? Do you have time every day where you're basking in his presence and adoring him? Does the music you listen to draw you closer to him? Do you have time set aside to tell him how much you love him? Think about this. Mental, emotional, and spiritual health can only be experienced when God is in the center of our thoughts. I mean real health, real wholeness. When God is the center of our thoughts, our decisions, our hopes, our dreams, our aspirations, our time, our profession, our responsibilities, our relationships, our everything. So don't let this session go by without being honest with yourself about this question. Are you in that sweet spot? Are you in that sweet spot where Jesus is at the center so that you can find balance and health and peace and wholeness in every aspect of your life, regardless of life circumstances? If you feel anxious, this is a real key. If you're experiencing psychological symptoms, it's very appropriate to find out whether there's an underlying physiological cause. Absolutely. Go see a good doctor. If you want to see a Christian doctor, that's great. But go see a good doctor, right? Because it may be physiological. You may have a serotonin deficiency, which is why you're being depressed, right? But if it isn't uh, one of these problems, then listen to God's plan for mental and emotional health. We got it from David. In his depression, here's what David is showing us. If you feel anxious, worship the Lord. If you're having trouble sleeping, worship the Lord. If you're depressed, worship the Lord. If you're having issues with your sense of self-worth, worship the Lord. Don't turn more inside. Turn more toward Him. If you're hopeless, Worship the Lord. Making Jesus the very center of our entire life is the only thing that can bring balance in all of life. Yes, people who don't know Jesus can have portions for a period of time of their life where things may be going great. But the reality is when it all boils down, um, we have a hole in our heart that can only be filled with God. And until it's filled with God, we will chase other things and they will master us. And that is not health. That is not wholeness. That is actually bondage. All gods, which we turn everything into except the one true God, when we need them or hope in them, all gods will always fail and will always lead us to bondage, right? So, if Jesus isn't the exalted center in everything, every decision, every moment, every choice, then we'll ultimately lose balance in the rest of our lives. Now, when we affirm this biblical concept, it's important to recognize that this view is exactly the opposite of the entire foundation of modern psychology. When you start talking about the basis for mental and emotional health, the difference between sec the secular view and the biblical view couldn't be any more stark. Listen, in psychology, the basis for emotional health is threefold. We're going to come back to this next week in detail. And because this is such a perfect time, you know, if we could blow through Daniel and never pay attention to how much Nebuchadnezzar and his self-absorption and how crazy and psychotic he got in his self-absorption. If we blow through this and it never impacts us, then we've missed Babylon. We may know how, to, how this all unpacks, right? 
But if it doesn't help us know Jesus and know God better, then we're, uh, prophecy is not meant to just unpack things like this amazing prophetic timeline. So right now, so we're going to cover it in more detail, but let me just give you the three-fold basis for emotional health in modern psychology. Ready? Ready? Number one, self-esteem. Number two, self-awareness. Number three, self-love. You got that? Could we have any more self in this? Could this be any more like Nebuchadnezzar's psychological problem? Self, self, self. But this is the same basis in Nebuchadnezzar's life, right? Before he awakened to his error, Nebuchadnezzar's story is a perfect picture of the insanity of our day. And it gives a profound instruction about the only way that we will able to be truly living in true emotional, physical, and spiritual health. Ready? Here's the key concept. Write it in. If I'm the center of my attention, here it is. If I'm the center of my attention, self-esteem, self-awareness, self-love, self-self-self, if I'm the center of my attention, my focus, my decisions, and my life, I will never be truly whole. And now, let's look back at what we've learned in Babylon. You may remember that we spent a lot of time emphasizing the fact that the Hebrew word for Babylon is the word balal. And remember what it means? It means confusion. And we also learned about humanity's ultimate confusion, right? The belief that started in the garden at the fall. The belief that we have the right to assert our own will, to pursue our own desires. We have the right to be like God. And the modern psychology movement and the movement of the self is the culmination of millennia of hoping this ancient philosophy and it's led us to today, today's pervasive confusion. You ready for the irony? About the self. How many people now say literally, who am I? And it's ironically that we never will know ourselves until we know the great true self where all identity and health and wholeness flow from. And so we see once again, there's no such thing as a new age. Every new age is just the old age all over again, packaged in new colors. So let's finish by returning with me to Daniel, the book of Daniel, right? So you're in the Psalms. Turn to the right. You'll get to Isaiah, the major prophets. Daniel's the last of them. Back to chapter 4 of Daniel, and here's where we're going to end. Let's look back at Nebuchadnezzar's story. We've been through these verses a couple times, so now you'll know them well, but they are so incredibly instructive. Ready? Verse 30. The king reflected and said, verse 30, chapter 4, Is this not Babylon the great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power? And for the glory of my majesty, verse 33, the end of that paragraph, immediately the word concerning Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled and he was driven away from mankind and he began eating grass like cattle and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. Here we have a stark raving maniac, a guy who desperately needs to be in a lockdown unit, right? 
That's who we have. Completely psychotic. But now I want us to look at what it took to deliver Nebuchadnezzar from his, ready? His psychiatric problem. His insanity. Right? You ask anybody, anybody today and they'd say, wow, he's insane. He's, he's psychotic. Look at this. Verse 34. This is absolutely remarkable. But at the end of that period, so here's Nebuchadnezzar after seven years of eating grass. You ready? But at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven. And now watch what happens when Nebuchadnezzar's eyes go off of Nebuchadnezzar and on to God. Look at this. I raised my head toward, head towards, eyes toward heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High God and praised and honored Him who lives forever. Now listen to his words. His reason has returned to him. Nebuchadnezzar is no longer about Nebuchadnezzar and looking in on himself. Look at this. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. And all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth and no one can ward off his hand or nor can anyone say, what has he done? Verse 36, at that time, look at this. At that time, my reason returned to me and my majesty and splendor were restored to me for the glory of my kingdom and my counselors and my nobles began seeking out so that I had, was reestablished in my sovereignty and surpassing greatness was added to me. Think about that. God wanted him in that position but he could only be sane and he could only be safe as a leader when God was in the right place. And Nebuchadnezzar was, as he said, the people are of no account. Right? Verse 37. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the king of heaven for all his works are true and his ways are just and he is able to humble those who walk in pride. Here we see the cure of a madman. We see a raving maniac go from confusion to clarity, from fantasy to reality, from falsehood to truth, from psychosis to reason. Here we see the, 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 uh, an amazing, amazing change. What, what uh, all modern psychologists would say he is, he's schizophrenic, right? But his real problem was about getting himself out of the center. His real problem was about taking his self-image and his self-love and his self-esteem, which, by the way, is the basis of modern psychology, and turning it all over to God so that God alone could be his whole identity. So here are the summary concepts, and here are your blanks. The more humans exalt our ways over God's ways, the crazier and more detached from reality we become. Let me say that again. The more humans exalt our ways over God's ways, the crazier and more detached from reality we become. And ready, number two, true peace and balance and health and wholeness only come when I put God at the center of everything in my life. Let's pray. Let me ask you, are you whole today? Can you honestly say that Jesus is at the very center of everything in your life? Is he your security, your future, your hope, your focus, your delight, 
your passion, or has something else become the center? Oh Lord, help us to learn from this Babylonian king. We saw that you meant for him to be great. You meant for him to make the world better, and you mean that for us. But Lord, as long as I'm at the center, as long as self, self, self is where my hope is and my focus, I will always, Lord, be self-destructive. I will always be finding my identity in the wrong place, and it will always crash. Thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness to Nebuchadnezzar, and thank you for the faithfulness you have for your word tonight to us by exposing to us, Lord, wherever you're not the center, I repent and I give it back to you. We love you, Lord. Amen.